Today's show is brought to you by Sawyer. Sawyer's the same guys that make the micro filters and water filters, but here's something else they do. Are you aware that Lyme disease, which is spread by ticks, is the fastest growing infectious disease in the United States and has been found in all 50 states? Lyme disease can cause neurological disorders such as Bell's palsy, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and even severe allergies to red meat. That will make you a vegan. You never gotta watch out for that. Sawyer's permethrin insect repellent repels and kills ticks, mosquitoes, and more than 55 other types of insects. It is designed for shoes, clothing, backpacks, and other outdoor gear, and will even be safe for your dog. It provides an odorless barrier for protection that lasts for up to six weeks and can go through the washing machine six times. If you use Sawyer's permethrin on your shoes, that makes you 74 times less likely to be bitten by a tick. And if you're not bitten by a tick, well, then things are good for you as a backpacker. So tell us about this great trip that you're going on. Right now, you started in Alameda, California, which is next to San Francisco. And then you decided to just go east, but without planes. That's right. So the, the specific goal is to go around the world, San Francisco to San Francisco, without using airplanes. Um, and so, yeah, I started there. I took the Amtrak across the United States. Uh, and then I took a container ship across the ocean and then lots of different uh, vehicular transportation across Europe and uh, got stuck a couple of times along the way, including right now. But my goal is to just finish all the way up and make it back to San Francisco. It's always the mishaps that always make the best travel stories. They they suck when you're in the middle of it. But on the other hand, uh, they always are the ones that intrigue all the the armchair travelers out here. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And actually, those mishaps were the, the thing that I was most excited about when I decided to do this trip. That's actually the reason I'm doing it instead of flying. Um, tell us so about I can that. tell you the very first mishap I had, um, I get to the train station, my very first train. Um, uh, this is in Emeryville, California. I get to the Amtrak station. I've never taken an Amtrak before. I go up to the, the woman at the counter just to ask if I'm at the right place. And she's like, well, that, that train doesn't come here. And I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't come here? I have a ticket that says it's here. And she's like, that sucks. The train doesn't come here. And I'm like, okay, well, can you help me at all? And she's like, the train actually got stuck in Reno overnight and it didn't make it here and it's not coming here today. Uh, and I'm like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And they're, they're like, we're going to get you somehow over to Reno. And they did somehow. We took a train to Sacramento and then uh, a bus to, to Reno. And uh, there were several mishaps along the way. Amtrak obviously was having a bad day. They um, didn't schedule the right number of buses or even any buses when we got to Sacramento. So they, we had to wait for about an hour um, for the first bus. And then they're like, oh, we need more people. So another hour to get the second bus. Um, and then we get to Reno and the train still isn't ready. So, you know, about five hours delay on my very first day uh, before I even start really moving. Um, And just that kind of thing happened throughout the entire thing. And and it was, it's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to see how uh, things work in the real world. It's more personal rather than, I think, you know, as many people as possible cramp into an airplane, not really talking to each other. I immediately right off the bat got to see like very friendly people at the Amtrak station, very angry people at the Amtrak station, uh, off the cuff. It was exactly what I wanted. Are you kind of a spoiled brat in real life? Are you doing this for masochistic reasons? Like you need to man up a bit? 
you know, I don't, I don't think anything like that. Um, I, I do, I don't think I'm spoiled, but I am very stoic, and I do like seeing uh, just a different perspective on things. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's slow travel. It's the more interesting way to travel. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. But I, 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 sometimes I get a sense, like, I don't know, like, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but with eat, pray, love, you know, she just wants to get out of her comfort zone and go somewhere. And a lot of travelers, I mean, they, they kind of live a cushy life more or less. And they're like, you know what? I need to like shake things up a bit and kind of, so I wasn't sure if you were kind of going in with that mindset or it sounds more like you're just a stoic person in general and you enjoy the simplicity of life and just simple things and, and whether it's cha- the challenges that, that come with that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I think, that, I think that's right. And it's also, um, I want to see as much as I can see. Um, you know, I've, I've lived a pretty well-traveled life even before this trip, uh, doing things like, you know, going and um, climbing mountains. So the idea for this trip, I was climbing Kilimanjaro. And at the end of that trip, um, when I was on the plane ride back home, I was thinking about all of the things I'd done on this trip. And it turns out like climbing Kilimanjaro was a lot of fun. But what I really enjoyed most was all of the other little side trips that we did along the way of the, the main mountain. And that was the thing where it really started me thinking like, okay, I should do a trip that's all about the little side trips. And that's kind of the, the, the beginning of this idea to go around the world without airplanes. Now, a lot of people love to criticize Amtrak. And how, in your experience, since you've taken already a lot of trains in Europe, uh, and Europe, I guess, for many people, except for maybe Japan, is kind of like the ideal form of train, uh, you know, like the epitome of, of great train travel. How do you feel Amtrak stacks up with uh, Europe so far? And you've gone all the way out to, to eastern Russia. That's true. Um, yeah, uh, pretty terribly. Uh, as far as trains go, uh, it's not. <laughs> it's it's not in the top of the list at all. Uh, on the train, on the train, it was really nice, uh, really high quality. Uh, the viewing, uh, the, I was on, you know, the the banner, you know, top of the line train that they take through the Rocky Mountains. It's got the observation cars, the restaurant, the Art Deco, everything. Very nice on the inside, but still running about five hours late. Um, and then I took several other trains, uh, throughout the USA on Amtrak and they also had their own set of problems, uh, oftentimes involving getting off the train and onto a bus. So that should tell you something about the quality of trains. Um, but I will say that Amtrak is still leagues ahead of any form of, uh, water travel. Okay. So tell us about that. So you got, it looks like from your map, did you get to Florida or did you get off before Florida? So I took the Amtrak to New Orleans, and I took a Greyhound to Miami from New Orleans. Got it. And, okay. Um, okay, got it. So in Miami, um, I, I did a little bit of a mini vacation with some Floridian friends. I'm originally from Florida. Um, but um, the ship that I was taking was a container ship uh, leaving Miami and going to Spain. And it was scheduled to leave uh, and take uh, nine days at sea. Oh, no, sorry. It was scheduled to take 11 days at sea, a little less than two weeks. And um, I, again, haven't ever used uh, a port before, never even been on a cruise ship, so I, like, don't know what to expect. I, it's not like an airport. I call the guy that I have the number for, and I ask him, like, okay, well, where do I go tomorrow for my ship? And he's like, uh, ship's not here. Try again tomorrow. And he just didn't really give me any <laughs> That kind of sounds like Amtrak in Alameda. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a theme. That was the same and, um, basic thing. It's <laughs> like, exactly, there's a theme here going so, on. Like, well, your mode of transportation has not yet arrived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for this, it actually was not just one day. It was actually three days delayed um, before I could finally get on this ship. Um, so I just... So I, Amtrak, I was, Amtrak is looking really good right at this point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And... Um, so that was that. And then later on um, in, in Azerbaijan, I actually spent uh, nine days waiting for a, a ferry across the Caspian Sea. So like, that was <laughs> just absolutely crazy. Yeah, no, that, that sounds more accurate. I was in Comoros waiting for a ferry for three weeks. And finally, I said, just fuck it. I'm just going to go take a fucking plane because I was just so tired of waiting for three weeks, waiting for a damn boat to show up. Uh, you have to have a certain amount of patience uh, in certain parts of the world. Um, so let's take a step backwards first, Ryan, and tell me how did you um, find this container ship? Like, like if somebody's listening to this and say, you know what? that sounds so cool. I would love to wait a couple of days for a ship and go across the ocean. I want to do the same thing like Ryan. How does somebody go about doing this? Let's say if you're in the United States. Yeah, well, I can, I uh, totally down to sell people on the idea. Um, so the way it works is there's a bunch of agents who just have uh, contacts at the uh, various shipping companies and there's no fixed itineraries or anything. You just kind of say like, I'm looking to get generally from this part of the world to generally this part. And they'll kind of look and do some research and come up with the, the lines that they can put you on. And uh, the rules for a, a container ship, you can't have more than a dozen passengers on it, period. Um, any more than that, and legally speaking, you have to have a doctor on the ship, and that's expensive. So uh, they can't have more than 12. Uh, but once, um, once you, you look through your options and you find it, uh, you, get, you get on this ship, maybe a couple days late, but it's just very serene, calm experience. Uh, when I was sitting there in the middle of the ocean, there was no internet. Uh, there was uh, an email machine. Uh, I could send emails, but it would take up to like six hours for the email to even leave the boat uh, and get, <laughs> you know, get to the person I was emailing. So uh, very isolated experience. Um, but yeah, all, I, all you have to do is email the uh, various travel agents. Um, I used a guy in South Africa. His name is uh, Hamish. If you Google for, um, you know, container ship cruises or cargo cruises, you will, you will find him uh, pretty quickly. And uh, yeah, he, he has routes all over the world. Webs, you have, this is all kind of very hand, a lot of hand holding in order to get this done. It's not like as easy as going on to kayak or to ex website like Expedia or something like that, where you just say, I want to go from here to here or this general, you have to talk to an yeah. individual on the phone, old school fashion, and just say, hey, I want to roughly go from the North America to Europe. How can I do that on a container yep. ship? And, and they walk you yep. through. And the, you can't pick your dates. Mm -hmm. you, you can't pick your dates. And you also can't even be specific once you have the date, because as I found out, you know, the ship might be several days delayed. Right, right. Um, what's the cost of going across, let's say, the Atlantic? How much did you have to pay for that wonderful trip across the ocean? Yeah, the, the, the costs for uh, container ship cruises are very expensive. It's, it's substantially more expensive than a passenger cruise of the same uh, uh, you know, duration or distance. Um, but pretty much worldwide, whatever route you're on, you're going to be looking at 100 to 300 euro a night um, for your room. You do get more space uh, than you would on a passenger ship, but it is, it is pretty expensive. So, you know, I budgeted basically 2,000 euro uh, to get across the Atlantic Ocean. 
Okay, so it takes about uh, 10 days or so? Yeah, week and a half. During those uh, 10 days, do they also provide food for you? Yes. So it's, you get three meals a day, um, and they're, they're really nice meals as well. You're eating with the captain, and those ships are as big as a small city and have 30 people on it. They have so much food. Um, the particular company that I went with was a French company, uh, so naturally there was a French wine with every dinner. Um, they had uh, coffee on the, in the wheelhouse every morning. I was talking to the officers on watch. Uh, great food. Uh, everything was paid for. Like there was no way you could possibly even spend money on the ship. Uh, who are the other passengers that are on? I mean, who are these crazy wackos that are with you side by side at the dinner player? Besides the captain, I'm talking about the passengers like you. Who else are these? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on 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 my particular cruise, there was only one other passenger. He was a recently retired uh, French man who uh, his grandson was born in the USA, and he hadn't you know, seen uh, his, his grandson yet. So he took a, uh, since he was just retired, he took a cruise across the ocean one way and now he was on a cruise back. And that was the only other passenger. But if you're saying that it's cheaper to take, let's say a princess cruise or some sort of standard commercial boat across, why would anybody pay for having the container ship experience, which sounds on the face of it to be less luxurious and more expensive? It is uh, less luxurious in some ways, um, but if you are interested in a very serene experience, like if I wanted to, I could walk anywhere on the ship, uh, all around the, to the bow. I could go to the wheelhouse. Um, I could sit out on the, the on the deck and and sunbathe and just completely empty ocean, no people around whatsoever. So it's very serene and peaceful. So if you're looking for that experience, that's something that you can only get from the container ship. And then also you get to do cool stuff. I did a tour of the engine room. Uh, they let me drive the container ship for a couple of minutes. Um, they, I, let, I walked around all over the deck and you know explored the bow and got to do the Titanic scene by myself and <laughs> all of that stuff. So, <laughs> so you know, just you get to, you get a lot more freedom, uh, even though it's you know less luxurious. There's no casino or shows. Got it. And so and and you knew that you could have taken a regular passenger ship. Was it just because you wanted a little more oddball experience for why you picked a container ship? Or was there some other driving force? Because I always thought, you know, people take container ships because they're cheap as hell. But obviously you blew that notion off the, out of the water. So um, yeah, why, why didn't you just say, I'm going to go to Miami and take a nice cushy uh boat across the ocean like ever, so many other people do? Well, for me, um, there are, in a weird way, you get more freedom with the passenger ships. So, I mean, that, that freedom is a two-way street, right? The, the uh, Sorry, with the container ships, you get a, a weird kind of more freedom. With the passenger ships, they have a fixed itinerary. It's these days, uh, and it'll get you to where you're going. Um, but at the same time, it's also very seasonal. So if you're not in the right season, they just don't run the passenger cruises. Mm. Uh, cargo ships run year-round. Um, another aspect of it is, uh, you, you do get more leeway with, uh, the actual dates because the passenger cruises only run when they get a full boat, the container ships run when they get a full cargo boat and there's always a backlist. So like they're, they're much more frequent. This is a kind of an economics question, but I was just curious if you found out something about tr global trade, because we always talk about the United States having a trade deficit. So I'm just wondering if one of the the ship is going back to Europe, is it going like 75% empty? Sorry, not 75, 25% empty. 
uh, or is it, I imagine, fully, you know, full of goods and services? Maybe those goods and services are less expensive than the ones that came in. Uh, the particular... The particular ship that I was on was not full when it was traveling to Europe, um, but it was reasonably full. However, I do know that a lot of that was just because, like, if it was going from Northern Europe to Southern Europe, uh, it might have been cheaper to put it on a ship going all the way around to the America on that. Uh, but it, it was not empty. It was, uh, it was over half full. Got it. And I'm going now, by the way, for those who are listening to this and curious where were his trip, you go to polarsteps.com and your username is C. Ryan Ramble. And that should get you to uh, Ryan Patterson's uh, page there where you can actually see his GPS trail, which sometimes shows at the beginning as an airplane, but we, as we know, we, he took an Amtrak. But it looks like you landed in Gibraltar or very close to Gibraltar. Yeah, uh, it's the Bay of Gibraltar. There's a city on the other side, and that's where I got to Spain. That's right, Algeciras. That's funny because that's where I left. I left Algeciras on a boat to go to Morocco. So you kind of arriving there, I kind of left there. Anyway, from there, you, uh, you went across, you went to Gibraltar, and then you cut across to Madrid, Barcelona. And by the way, this is all happening right before the corona apocalypse cr- crushed us. So you were having a damn well, good old time, yeah. right? This was, this was last year. I spent all of last year doing this trip. So um, the coronavirus didn't set in until you know, early this year. Which was great. Um, I mean, you were lucky to get you. You were lucky to see all of Europe and uh, before the restrictions go. And Spain, Spain got hit hard by the Corona apocalypse. So you did. You you got you lucked out there. So tell us about uh, Western Europe first, and tell us about any any highlights there. So I think one of my greatest fears as a traveler was always going to a country where I didn't speak the language. And so that actually factored in into when, where I was uh, planning on traveling when I was, you know, routing out my whole circumnavigation. Um, as an American, I was exposed to Spanish uh, in school, but I never learned it. So I actually spent a, a lot of my downtime in the ship, on this container ship, learning Spanish, studying it. Um, and so I was able to kind of even talk my way through basic interactions, you know, buying things or getting bus tickets, you know, that kind of thing um, in Spanish. Um, I don't speak a word of French. What percentage of the Spaniards were speaking English, Could were capable of speaking English, as far as you could tell? In Madrid and Barcelona, it was easy. Um, but when I was in Algeciras and, uh, you know, the villages in Andalusia, um, not much at all. Like, a couple people knew a couple of words, but, like, for the most part, the communication was entirely in Spanish. So I don't speak a word of French, so I was, uh, I kind of arranged the entire trip according to difficulty. I started going across America because I speak English and I'm an American, so it's easy. Um, I figured Western Europe would be pretty English friendly and kind of as the trip went on, it would get harder and harder. You know, now that I'm in uh, Russia, East Asia, you know, those, especially a lot of the countries that are not known for their English, um, you know, speaking population, uh, it was going to be more difficult. So uh, France was like my first big challenge. I don't speak a word of it. I was very nervous about going there. Um, I didn't end up staying very long just as a result of that fear. <laughs> um, and I hopped over to, uh, to Swiss, uh, Switzerland. Uh, and I, I met a couple people, uh, extended friend network in, in Switzerland, and that was quite nice. Um, and 
Swiss people speak fantastic English uh, in many ways better than a lot of English speakers speak English. So that was really easy. Um, and uh, I spent a couple, uh, about a week and a half um, staying with some friends and then doing a little bit of house sitting in Zurich uh, before moving on to Vienna. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think for most of uh, the, the Eastern Europe stuff, I was uh, doing the normal like backpacker, staying in hostels, moving on. Were you doing it 100% on trains or were you doing some buses too, a little bit of both? Um, for most of this, it was, uh, it was, it was on trains. Um, I did meet some people in a hostel in Austria and we did a ride here together um, for part of the, the journey. Um, but pretty much all of this uh, Western Europe and, and Central Europe was on trains. Let's take a 60-second break to thank one of our sponsors, Icelab.co. This is the best time to move to the mountain town of your dreams. COVID-19 has changed how the world does business, and many people are now working remotely. So why not live in the mountain paradise you've always dreamed of? The Gunnison Valley in Colorado is that perfect place. Why? Because it's nestled between four spectacular mountain ranges. It has 750 miles of biking and hiking and crested buttes, world-class skiing. And then there's that award-winning school system. It's got it all. Now imagine waking up in your ultimate destination every morning. No traffic, no crowded trails, no more wishing you lived in the mountains. Work where you play in Gunnison Valley to start living your dream. Visit icelab.co. That's icelab.co. So I spent a week in Bulgaria doing house sitting, and um, I ended up getting there around May, so still early, uh, early summertime. And in Bulgaria, how was the uh, your English uh, ability to find English speakers in Bulgaria in Sofia? Uh, when I was in Sofia, it was it was fine. It was very. Um, I was staying at a hostel. I was going to a, uh, like there were walking tours that were. Uh, in English language, like it was very accessible uh, for English speakers there. So far, you have not been traumatized by your your childhood fear of in, a lack of English speakers. The the only traumatic experience I had up to that point was a woman at, at my hostel in France said uh, "bonjourne" to me. Oh my god! Uh, which means oh my good god. day. <laughs> and and I was like, oh my gosh, did I not pay my bill or something? Like I just like didn't understand it all. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, no, I did start to get into the challenging. It, it, it ended up being better than I thought on in my fears. Um, it got challenging once I got to Turkey. Um, that's really where things got difficult. Um, I remember I arrived in Turkey on bus uh, early in the morning, and I was doing a work away. Uh, a work away is uh, basically you do a volunteer at some venue um, for some period of time, typically around a month. Uh, they pay for generally room and board. So I was going to a Turkish vineyard um, to work in the, on, the, on the vineyard. Um, and uh, where I was was very rural Turkey, and no one spoke any English whatsoever. Um, I remember I got on a bus uh, hoping to go to the little village that I was go going to, which if you're going towards Istanbul, it's easy, and if you're not, uh, you're on your own. I got on the bus, and it started going, and then it didn't go to the turn I thought it was going to. So I got off the next city, uh, and I, none of the people at the uh, bus station spoke any English. And, uh, you know, I just arrived in Turkey. I didn't have a cell phone with Internet or anything. 
uh, I ended up drawing a map of the area on my notebook, and I circled like the city I want to go to, and I just pointed at that until someone finally um, understood what I was looking for, very friendly, helped me out, put me on the bus. Uh, I still wasn't totally sure, but uh, as I was like looking, it's like, okay, this is going the right direction. And that was my first big, uh, I think, language challenge. And then you got to, from Turkey, you went to Georgia, Azerbaijan, and then it looks like from Azerbaijan, you took a boat f- uh, from Baku to a- across the uh, the sea there. Uh, I forgot the name of the sea. Is that Caspian Sea or something? Caspian Sea, yeah. I got to Georgia, and uh, my original plan, uh, when I was planning out my whole trip, I was going to go to Georgia uh, and use that as a base. They have a very friendly visa policy. If you're American, you can just go there for a year, visa on arrival. Nice. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll go there. I'll plan out the rest of my trip. And my goal was to take a train across Kazakhstan into China and then Southeast Asia. Uh, and this is summer of last year, uh, way before coronavirus was a thing. But China rejected me and did not give me a visa. Um, I believe the reason for that was, ironically, because I visited Turkey. Um, they made me provide additional evidence, and they said I could possibly get a visa if I went to the embassy for China in Houston, Texas, and appeared in person uh, to do an interview. I might be able to get a visa for China. So they rejected me, and I kind of had to come up with a backup plan, and that's actually why I'm in Russia right now. Um, I was sitting in Georgia comparing options, like there's not a lot of ways for a U.S. citizen to get uh, you know, to the Pacific Ocean from Georgia without using airplanes. Uh, that's kind of a, d- a difficult part of the world. Right. But hold on one second. I, I just want to try to understand. Did you go to the Chinese embassy in Georgia? I went to the Chinese embassy in Georgia and they rejected me outright. They're like, you don't have a permanent resident Georgian, uh, Georgian permanent residency permit. Uh, so you have to apply through the U.S. embassy. I mailed the passport to the USA um, because there was there was a company that specializes in providing Chinese visas and will help do all of the paperwork for you. And they guided me through the process and they accepted my passport and delivered it to the embassy. And then I got rejected from that embassy as a result of me not being able to appear in person. Oh, uh, you mean like the embassy in Washington, D.C.? In Houston. Um, oh, because I, I, yeah. That's a consulate, effectively. Uh, yeah. Chinese consulate. Okay, so okay, so let me just summarize to make sure I understand this. What happened is, is you went to the embassy of China in Georgia. I forgot the capital of Georgia. Tbilisi. From there, they said apply. You cannot apply here because you're not a resident of Georgia. You have to apply from your home country. And you're like, okay. Uh, instead of applying directly to the Washington, D.C. embassy, you went to the consulate in Houston. No, 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 no. Um, the, the requirement for China is you have to apply at the consulate that is closest to your state of residence. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm originally from Florida. The closest one is Houston, Texas. So all of, of all of the embassies that are in uh, the United States for China, there are five. I have to go to the Houston one to get a visa. And then you applied, and because you're not there in person, they rejected you. But you suspect that it has to do more with the fact that you went to Turkey, but you have no evidence, and you're not sure. Exactly, yeah. The company that I was with had me actually provide extra supporting information. I had to write a letter saying why I had the audacity to visit Turkey. Um, I mentioned how beautiful the winery was, but it wasn't compelling. 
Oh, that's incredible. I mean, it does have a nice winery. They should understand that. I guess they don't. Yeah. Okay, so um, <laughs> now you were in Georgia for how many months? Six months. Um, so what happened was at the end of the first month, I had you know been rejected and needed to come up with a backup plan. I decided to go to Russia, but I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to be going through Siberia, I should go when it's the proper time to go to Siberia, which is naturally when everything is a frozen wasteland. So... <laughs> That's I, I waited until the middle of February to leave Georgia to get to Russia. Got it. Okay. And was, in retrospect, that a brilliant move or not? With the exception of the coronavirus, yes. Um, I went ice diving um, in Lake Baikal. Lake Baikal is the largest freshwater lake in Asia. It's, it's got a lot of actual titles to its name. It's huge, it's freshwater, and it freezes completely solid in winter because it's so damn cold. And I think it's also the deepest lake in the world as well. And it's beautiful. It's totally beautiful. So I, I did ice diving there for a week. Uh, we would, you know, drive out onto the ice and in, in a car, drive out onto, onto the lake, uh, stick a chainsaw into the ground and jump in there for an hour every day. Um, and then once I was on that trip, I was there on Ohon Island, and that's when borders started closing because of coronavirus. Got and, it. Uh, at that point, I looked at into my future, and um, my goal is my next country when I was, you know, still traveling was uh, either Korea or Japan, and those were both one of the earliest and heaviest hit coronavirus countries. Uh, so it just immediately just pulled the brakes on my trip, and well, then I've been here for the next couple months. <laughs> Great. Um, so, give us before you 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 tell us about how you got to Lake Baikal and all that stuff. How was the visa process uh, from Turkey onward? Obviously, you got dinged by China, but you did get a visa to Azerbaijan. You got a visa to Kazakhstan and, of course, to Russia. I don't know if you went to Kyrgyzstan or not. I guess you didn't. Um, but how were those visas that you were uh, getting along the way in Asia starting from Turkey? Was it visa on arrival or difficult? One of the things I did when I started my trip was actually I made a I had a printed out map of the U.S. on corkboard, and I put a little colored pen um, in each country according to the visa process. And that was one of the critical pieces of me coming up with my route. Um, Turkey was e-visa. Um, I actually just, when I was on the bus headed to the border, I applied for the visa uh, and paid the fee and got it. It was on my phone, didn't have to print anything out. Pretty easy. Georgia, I already mentioned, there's no process. You can just stay for a year. Um, Azerbaijan was another e-visa. I had to do that one a little bit in advance and print it out, but nothing, nothing crazy. Kazakhstan was visa on arrival. Um, so that was nice and easy. And I think you can stay for a month. Uh, and then Russia is tricky. Uh, it's not instantaneous. You have to mail your passport, um, and get the, the permit and it takes a while. Um, but uh, at least when I did this last year, U.S. citizens can get a three-year-long visa, uh, multiple entry, six months at a time with no dates on it. So, um, you know, after I had that visa, it was easy to, to manage. Oh, really? Okay. And then you got that Russian visa where exactly? What embassy? Sorry, you're right. I didn't have to mail it in. Um, but uh, so I got it in Georgia, um, but it's a little bit awkward because of the political situation between Russia and Georgia, the Swiss embassy actually hand, is like an entourage between the two governments. So you go to the Swiss embassy to get your Russian visa while you're in Georgia. That's funny. <laughs> so much for the Swiss being neutral. How about that, Swiss guys? Hey, they're, they're orchestrating. That's the definition <laughs> of neutrality to me. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. <laughs> 
I think I think they're Russian spies. That's what I'm. T- that's the story I'm sticking to. It maybe okay. <laughs> um, okay, so what, Ryan? How the hell are you going to cross the Pacific Ocean? Well, I mean, I realize the bigger challenge at this point that you're facing is how do I even get to the Pacific Ocean? But are you hoping to get to Vladivostok, which is one of the easternmost cities of Russia? I am, um, but there's one detail that I haven't mentioned yet, which is um, I didn't actually go around the world. I'm not halfway around the world yet until I visited two points on the opposite side of the globe. Um, So there's this village in Spain that I went to, and there's this nice church plaza that's circular, and right in the center of that is a GPS point that I picked. And if you go there and you dig straight down, and you don't stop until you get to the, the surface again, you pop out in Auckland, New Zealand. So before I can go back to San Francisco, I have to get to Auckland, New Zealand. And... Originally, I was planning on getting to Japan and figuring something out. I didn't have a fixed plan, but my ideas were either cargo ship container or a container ship uh, down to New Zealand or a private sailboat down to New Zealand. And I'd like to do a whole tour of like Southeast Asia. You know, hopefully I was thinking maybe Vietnam and like cruise through Indonesia over land uh, and then possibly Australia to New Zealand. Um, how was is up in the air because there's not really many fixed options. There are some passenger cruises that I was looking at, but it would depend on the time of year. And since coronavirus happened, uh, I haven't been able to pick any specific dates yet. But uh, it's still going to be a long time before I actually cross the Pacific Ocean. Now, you have a mustache. Now, how is it traveling with a mustache? Because I imagine that when you see another guy with a mustache, they, you kind of look at each other and you're like, yeah, dude, we're part of the same club. Or is there any of that going on? Am I just completely making this up? I can be pulling this all out of my ass right now. You know, um, I do get a lot of commentary on it. Actually, uh, right now I'm rocking a beard. Uh, and to be completely honest, that has mostly to do with that's what the women in this part of the world seem to prefer. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your 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 logic here. Here we go. <laughs> I, I solicit opinions as often as possible, and uh, in since I've been in Georgia, uh, the Georgian beard game is so strong. Um, but uh, the the women seem to to like it that way. So I I started growing with the beard, and then uh, when I was in Kazakhstan and still Russia, I think it's pretty similar. Uh, I think in Russia it's it's probably easier for me to get away with the. Uh, the mustache, but um, I haven't gone back to it yet this this summer. The, some great, great photos at Polar Steps. Uh, I don't know if that's your main website or if you have another one that you prefer to send people to. Um, uh, mostly actually on my Instagram. Uh, it's Instagram slash C Ryan Ramble, S-E-E, Ryan, R-Y-A-N Ramble, R-A-M-B-L-E. I was going to do some writing, uh, blogging, um, but it turns out writing is really hard. So I haven't actually done it. <laughs> yes, I can vouch for that completely as I'm still stuck in my Africa book. Now, what's your favorite city in the world besides Qatar, Montenegro? Because I'm just biasing you there. Qatar uh, was beautiful. Um, I would say that's probably not Are my you favorite. Just, hold on. You're just saying it's beautiful. That's it? That's all you got to say? Beautiful? Qatar is bu- beautiful? Come on, dude. Say something more, you know, exciting about Qatar. It's my favorite city in Europe. I'll, I'll say something more exciting about Urtvezlo. Um, uh, which is a tiny city on Lusitia Peninsula, uh, which is basically just towards the coast from Kotor. And that's where my step-grandfather lives, and that was just beautiful. He lives right on the coast. Um, I stayed there for a week. Uh, we drank rakia and coffee every morning and would walk around, and 
whenever he got tired, he's 84 years old. Whenever he would get tired, we would go to a cafe and either grab a rakia or a coffee. And like that was just a beautiful experience. I absolutely loved that about Montenegro. Is he the guy with uh, a patch on his eye? Yes, that's right. He's got he's got one eye. He's the the village pirate. He actually has a pirate flag above his house in this little town. Were you ever camping during this whole time, or were you always staying in hostels or on a hammocks? Uh, I did I did actually a camping trip in uh, Georgia. Um, I uh, I got into a fight with a with a stray dog um, actually while I was doing that. Uh, it was quite an adventure. <laughs> Tell us about that uh, stray jog. How how was that? So there's this famous hike in Georgia. It's four days long. It's uh, it's in the Svaneti region of Georgia, and it's uh, Mestia to Ushguli, or the two cities at either ends. And uh, me and two of my friends did this hike, and we finished the first day, about eight hours of hiking, um, and we arrive at a guest house. We're staying in a guest house that night, and um, there's a dog and some children playing in the front yard, and, and we settle in, and it's communication's a little difficult. Uh, the kids speak English. The adults speak uh, Russian. And, of course, everyone who lives there speaks Georgian. Um, but I don't speak any Russian, um, or I didn't at the time, um, and I don't speak any Georgian. So I was speaking with the kids. They told me that the dog's name was Voldemort, um, and they were just playing with him. So, you know, I, I love dogs, uh, so I kind of played with them for a little bit. But then later on that night, I was moving from, you know, my bedroom to another building in the, the complex, and um, the Voldemort was lying there on the ground, so I leaned down and, and pet him as I'm walking by, but I move him a little bit too quickly, and I scare him, um, and he snaps at me. And I don't know what the right thing to do when a dog snaps at you, um, but what I decided to do was engage the dog rather than retreat. Um, my logic there is, is if I back up, he might actually just continue grabbing at me and cut the flesh. He hasn't done that yet. He just snapped at me. So I, I grab the dog by his cheeks. And we're, we're, we're scrapping for a little bit, but he's not, he hasn't actually bitten me because I've grabbed his, the side of his head so he can't turn and bite me. And I kind of push him down and, okay, I, I successfully have control of the situation. I survived this dog fight. I know not to touch this dog anymore. You have successfully uh, fought off Voldemort. Fold, fought off Voldemort. But I'm still <laughs> holding this dog, and I don't really know what to do. The woman, like the, the grandmother who, who lives at this guest house, is, is, has come out, and she's got a big stick, and she's like ready to hit this dog to scare it away from, from me. And my buddy comes over, and he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't really know what's going on. Um, and I just like, we kind of wait there, slow count to three. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let go. One, two, three. And I let go as quick as possible. But he had one more bite left in him, and he snapped at me, and he did exactly what I was afraid of. He tore into my arm, and immediately just there's blood everywhere. Uh, I honestly don't know exactly what happened. I think he was running away from me because at that point I just walked away from him, went into the kitchen, and started scrubbing my wounds. Um, <laughs> Oh, God. But what I, what I found out later was that that dog was not the, hot, the guest house dog. It was actually a stray dog that had wandered in. But the only people who were at this guest house were, you know, the mom, the children, and the grandma. And they were waiting for the husband to come home and, and get the dog away. Uh, <laughs> the dog had already bitten grandma earlier that day. But because there was no communication between us, they spoke Russian, we spoke English um, and Georgian, um, you know, we didn't get that message. So I had to spend the next two hours in a rickety minivan driving through very rickety mountain roads. We literally spent some of the time driving through a river 
um, like upstream, not across, uh, to get to the hospital back in Mestia, uh, got my rabies shot, drove all the way back. Um, and then that dog had a pretty bad rest of his night. All of the men in the village got together and kind of just chased him off. Oh, poor thing. Yeah, it was, it was a poor thing. But the next morning he was waiting outside the fence. And you could tell it was him because he had a splash of my blood across his forehead and he was just waiting outside that fence. Is your final boat trip back to California, is it going to take you to Hawaii or how are you going? Or are you going to go? I've seen this map on Instagram, your very first picture, and it looks like you're taking the Southern Ocean uh, underneath Ushuaia and underneath Tierra del Fuego to get back. But maybe I'm misreading the map. Yeah, that, that's actually just an artifact of the paper map. I didn't have an actual globe. Uh, no, my, um, my goal, it would be wonderful to go to Hawaii um, and like take a cruise from New Zealand to Hawaii and then stay in Hawaii for a bit and then Hawaii to either L.A. or San Francisco directly. Uh, I don't know what it's going to look like for me. Um, it will depend a lot on the mode of transportation that I get. If it's a passenger cruise, it'll probably be... New Zealand to Hawaii, Hawaii to LA. Um, if I can find just somebody who's sailing that direction, I might try and just get like a private sailboat and, and go with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a super common direction though. The winds kind of blow the wrong way for that. So it might be tricky. Uh, and then also there's just some part of me that would love to just like island hop for a while, you know, all of the, all of the Pacific islands and, you know, meander my way slowly. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It sounds like a fabulous trip. What kind of advice would you give people who are foolish enough to follow your footsteps? Um, don't plan too hard. Um, I, I don't, I don't think I did. Um, I did have a detailed plan where, like I said, I plotted out all of the countries, but you know, as soon as I encountered one roadblock, I had to pretty majorly change my, uh, my plans around. You know, I originally wanted to go through China. China was blocked off and it turns out China's, uh, a really big chunk of land to navigate around. Um, and uh, I guess the other piece of advice would be watch out for the oceans. Uh, I know a lot of people, other people who've attempted to do circumnavigations like this, um, ocean, ocean borders and, and land borders cause a lot more difficulty than air borders do, than airport yeah. borders do. Expand on that idea because I agree with you, but to expand more. But... Uh, so I've heard um, one, one fella who was attempting to, I think, motorbike from uh, UK to, uh, to Australia um, ended up getting all the way to um, uh, Papua New Guinea and was unable to get into Australia because they just don't like boats coming in. Um, uh, I've been warned by this by a lot of Australians uh, that it's very difficult to get into Australia overseas. And so he had to take a flight, um, just a small little hop uh, to get across, you know, the 70 kilometers of water uh, between <laughs> Australia and and, and uh, this Papua New Guinea, or I think it's Timor um, was the actual country. Um, so watch out for the water dif- uh, borders. Um, and uh, well, where else has been problems uh, as far as land? Um, I know uh, a lot of visas are visa on arrival. If you arrive in an airport, if you don't arrive at an airport, you have to have a visa ahead of time. So that can be a gotcha if you're if you're just kind of glancing over the uh, the visa restrictions. Um, that hasn't bitten me yet, but it's come close several times. Now, during the bulk of the Corona apocalypse, you have been in Siberia. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, uh, I think it started happening when I was in uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, I actually I met some Chinese tourists who were having a terrible time being uh, abroad um, when all of this was happening. 
but yeah, borders started closing once I got to Russia. How has the world looked to you from your perspective? In other words, during this whole pandemic going across, does it seem like, oh my God, am I happy to be in Siberia? Um, or were you thinking that, oh, I know it's not as bad as it looks like in America or wherever you're looking at? What's your perspective on the whole apocalypse? Yeah, when it when it was unfolding and um, there were still flights to the to and from the U.S., um, I was like seriously like, should I bail on the trip and fly back to the USA? And I, I was weighing the options out in my head, and it's like, on the one hand, if I get coronavirus, it's probably better for me to be in the USA near family. Um, if I don't get coronavirus, every single reason says it's better for me to be in Russia. Um, Number one being that, you know, if I'm in the USA, it means I bailed on my trip and I took an airplane and I called it quits. Um, you know, this is in many ways, even though this is a challenge that no one could have predicted, this is just another challenge of overland travel. Um, but uh, also, um, I'm enjoying the summer and the seasons and I'm meeting new people and uh, I'm learning a new language. Uh, personal achievement. Just last weekend, I went on a, a hike with a bunch of people who... Uh, don't speak English. So, you know, the conversation was entirely in Russian. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. So I'm still able to, like, learn and grow as a person, even while I'm sensibly trapped here in Siberia. Got it. Yeah. No, I think that's that's good advice that uh, people should embrace misfortune as much as it is. It's hard when you're it's hard when you actually have a time deadline. That's the challenge when you have a trip and you only have two week vacation or three week vacation. You must get home. Then all of a sudden a one or two day derailment really can uh, screw things up majorly for you. But uh, if you have an open ended, just uh, embrace it and, and roll with the punches. And I think you're doing the right thing in that respect. So I can uh, salute you on that. Um, what do you plan yeah, to do once you do get back home, Ryan? Uh, the first thing that I'm going to do is a road trip across the USA. Uh, okay, because you haven't traveled enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say hi to my friends in San Francisco and whatever. Uh, but I want to do a road trip across the USA. Um, and then after that, visit my family. And then after that, leave the USA for the next couple of years. Um, I am going to... Uh, continue traveling and living abroad. I don't have a specific where. I think I will keep moving. Um, but once I finish this trip, I'm going to start the next trip. Is that because you're one of those people who says, if Trump does not get elected again, I'm leaving the country? <laughs> no, no, that's not really. <laughs> I'm just saying that because I never hear that. <laughs> I always hear people saying, if Trump gets elected again, I'm leaving the country. So I just figure you might be the opposite. But anyway, <laughs> but seriously, uh, you will be here for, maybe for the election time. Who knows? You're probably not going to even make the election. You're going to just no, have to mail yeah, in your ballot and you're going to be probably, uh, you know, your ballot will be invalidated because it's mail in from Russia. So you're just skewing the election. Um, <laughs> well, I'm registered in California, so does it matter anyways? That's true. You're automatically a Democrat. So once you do your little road trip, uh, do you plan to just kind of go back to California or you have no idea? Well, so my family actually moved from Florida to Wisconsin. So my road trip, I think, is just, you know, California to Wisconsin. And then once I land in um, San Francisco, I'll be allowed to use airplanes again. So it'll be much more easier for me to fly or to travel in general. Um, but yeah, from Wisconsin, um, then I'll go to wherever I want to go. Well, let's uh, see Ryan Ramble, which is your handle on Instagram. See Ryan Ramble as an S-E-E. -E. That's right. 
And then also, if you want to see your little footsteps and train steps and boat steps, <clears throat> what is the name of the website again? It's uh, polarsteps.com. Polarsteps.com. And then my username there is also C. Ryan Ramble. Great. Well, any other places that people can find you online? Or those are the two best? Uh, if, you're, if you're a Facebook uh, person instead of an Instagram person, um, I do have a Facebook page. It's uh, Rambling Ryan. If you type in Rambling Ryan, uh, I should come up. Uh, Wonderful. You'll see a picture, uh, a, a drawing of me with a lovely mustache. As they say, Jarasho. Spasiba Balshoi. Desvidania. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.